Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Radical is released every Tuesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Campsite Media. When European settlers arrived in the colonies in the 17th century, they brought the death penalty with them. The first recorded execution by Europeans was carried out in 1608, long before American independence and the ratification of the Constitution. Crimes subject to the death penalty have included murder, robbery, rape, horse stealing, and aiding a runaway slave. For most of the 20th century, the state of Georgia electrocuted inmates to death, right up until the time of Mam Jamil's arrest, actually. But the courts ruled that cruel and unusual. So when Mam Jamil's life was put in the hands of 12 good folks from Georgia, he faced lethal injection. That was supposed to be more humane. Imam Jamil's defense team felt the pressure. Their arguments, the words they chose, even their facial expressions, it could all affect the jury's opinion. A mistake, a poor choice, could lead to Imam Jamil being sentenced to death and ultimately killed. Imam Jamil's defense attorney, Tony Axum. I would be asking to save his life. So that's a, that's a tremendous burden. You've said, jurors, he's not guilty, there's not enough evidence, and now you have to come in front of that same jury and say, okay, let's assume you got it right. I have a second argument for you. He should live. The prosecution was the first side to call witnesses. Deputy Kinchin's mother took the stand. She said when she was at home, she found herself sitting next to the phone, waiting for her son to call. Kinchin's sister said his death left her depressed and angry. Kinchin's wife said he had been a good father and that some days she just sat and cried. The defense called witnesses in an effort to show that Imam Jamil, in the decades before the shooting, had lived a life of service. 
Andrew Young, the former mayor of Atlanta and aide to Dr. King, he was a defense witness. Remember, it was Young, who nearly 20 years after this day in court, wrote a letter to the Fulton County DA's office, arguing that Imam Jamil was innocent. Young said that he and Imam Jamil, or H. Rat Brown at the time, met briefly in the 60s. They weren't close, but Young still knew that Rapp had lived through Jim Crow, worked in the rural South, endured violence, and spent much of his life as part of a movement pushing to improve the lives of black people. That counted for something. The way Young saw it, Axum told me, Imam Jamil had built up some credits going through all that. Credits in some imaginary system weighing the value of human lives. So he should be spared. Now we're at 2000 and we still don't have freedom. And that's the storm that Jamil Alamin weathered. And being in that storm, he deserves to live. Even if you think that he did it, spare his life, let him live. In their closing arguments, the prosecution said the murder was especially vile and that it showed Imam Jamil was depraved. Prosecutors showed gruesome, bloody photos of Kenshin's wounds. They said it mattered that it was a sheriff's deputy who was killed. And by sentencing Imam Jamil to die, the jury would be signaling that violence against law enforcement won't be tolerated. Jack Martin, in his closing argument, stressed the power that society had put in the hands of the jury. What is to be decided now, he said, is the most important decision that any person ever makes in their whole life. The most important decision that any democracy or any government ever makes. The one time that we presume to be godlike. I appeal to your best, not your worst, Martin said. I appeal to your hopes for the future, not your fears. I appeal to the possibility and the reality of redemption in all of us, not the brutal satisfaction of revenge, not the worst in us. Imam Jamil didn't fear execution. And as the jury deliberated on a sentence, he put everything in the hands of Allah. After five hours, the jury decided against the death penalty. And they sentenced Imam Jamil to life in prison without parole. From Campside Media, Tinderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts, this is Radical. I'm Mosi Secret. Episode 5, Cherry Pie. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. 
you just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imam Jamil, H. Rep. Brown, he had a gift for delivering unforgettable lines. But there's one phrase that's stuck in our cultural memory more than any other. He said it in a speech in 1967, during the long, hot summer of Black Rebellion. Violence is a part of America's culture. It is as American as cherry pie. Violence is as American as cherry pie. It's meant as a statement of fact, one of those beautiful phrases that's simple and profound at the same time. Rap wasn't saying that violence is inherently good. He was saying that violence is America, and America is violence. America was founded with violence, built with violence, and persists because of violence. Never mind that Americans eat apple pie way more than cherry pie. The slip better conjures up the red bloodiness of it all. I was still obsessed with getting to the bottom of what happened on the night of March 16, 2000. The evidence that came out at trial, it was too shaky for me to set aside the possibility that Imam Jamil was wrongfully convicted. But I was pulled in another direction, too. I needed to investigate this American violence, how it operates, and the consequences, however dark or disguised they might be. I sensed it was key to understanding Imam Jamil and to understanding the eruption of violence in the West End, whether Imam Jamil was involved or not. After Imam Jamil was convicted and sentenced, law enforcement officials held a secret meeting with the warden of Reedsville Prison in Tattnall County, Georgia. Imam Jamil was going to be transferred there. Tattnall County's story is America's story, crammed into 500 square miles of swamps and rolling hills in southeastern Georgia. At one point, a quarter of the county's population was enslaved, raising beef cattle and cotton under the Georgia sun and under the threat of death, rape, and family separation. Much of Tattnall County's success at the time, according to an official county website, can be attributed to slave labor. Then, the state of Georgia opened a prison near the county seat, Reedsville, and much of the county's growth in the last 35 years, again according to an official county website, can be attributed to Reedsville Prison. In that secret meeting, law enforcement officials told the warden that 30 to 50,000 people had vowed to save Imam Jamil 
and to spirit him away from the state of Georgia, by force if necessary. 30 to 50,000 people. Before law enforcement flew Imam Jamil to Reedsville in a helicopter, they set up a five-mile perimeter around the prison. Imam Tariq Khan was the sole Muslim chaplain at the prison when Imam Jamil arrived. They treated it like El Chapo, right? Like that there was going to be, you know, this army that's going to break him out or something and the snipers and everybody outside and trucks and this and that and bring him in in a Huey, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, it was none of that. You know, they just overdo stuff. Imam Tariq had met Imam Jamil before, on the outside. They'd seen each other at basketball games, and Imam Tariq went to the Weston Masjid a couple of times. As a chaplain, he had seen guards abuse inmates for basically no reason, and he worried they would give Imam Jamil an especially hard time. So after the helicopter landed, the Huey, he went to check on him. I wanted to stay there a little longer that day to make sure that when they brought him in, that he didn't get scraped up. You know what I mean? Reedsville was one of the state's highest security prisons. Politicians called inmates there the worst of the worst. Imam Jamil, now nearly 60 years old, was held in a unit named K-Building in solitary confinement. The doors to the cells in K-Building were solid metal except for a slot for a tray of food and a flap guards would open to handcuff the inmates. Imam Jamil's cell was probably 8 feet by 10 feet just enough room for him to take three steps in either direction. He was forced to spend 24 hours a day inside his cell, except for the occasions he was given an hour to go outside, to get some fresh air and direct sunlight. But even then, he was still inside a cage. Our systems of public safety are built on the idea that in order to protect the public, we must harm some individuals. Punishment is a kind of harm, a kind of violence often that as a society, we have agreed a person deserves because of the acts they committed. The death penalty is an obvious example of violence. It fits squarely into the most common definition, the exercise of physical force against another. And the practice of solitary confinement isn't too far off. Most often, state violence is concealed by bureaucracy and innocuous terms. Corrections, K-building, even confinement. They were really stringent on him, thinking that he was going to have control over people there, you know what I mean? But, you know, he had an even uh, mindset about him being in there. He wasn't panicking, you know. He just, this is where I'm at, you know. This is the hand I've been dealt, so I'm here. Imam Jamil was in solitary confinement, but he wasn't completely isolated. He could see visitors, and he had them almost every weekend and holiday. His wife, Karima, and their son, Kyrie, came about three times a month. Sister Karima, an attorney herself by this time, was working with a legal team to appeal Imam Jamil's conviction. And Imam Jamil's supporters, at least once a year, around Thanksgiving and Christmas, they gathered outside the prison to protest his conviction and his treatment inside. Imam Jamil communicated with the other inmates in K-Building by talking through air ducts between the cells. Imam Tariq told us that Imam Jamil gave the Shahada the Muslim oath, to a white supremacist in K-building, that he converted the guy to Islam. A tale, maybe a true one, from the legend of Imam Jamil. 
Imam Tariq, he visited K building pretty regularly. It wasn't necessarily a special trip for him per se, but I made sure that when I went over there that I got a chance to talk with him. I called the officer, tell the officer to drop the slot. There's a little slot there, and they would drop the slot so I don't have to talk in the crack of the door. But, you know, I used to talk to him periodically, you know what I mean? And he always had good spirits, you know I mean? He's locked up, don't have anything, and then ask you, is there anything I could do for you? You know, say, what, you need anything? I mean, that's his first words, you know. I mean, you locked up, what you got? You know what I'm saying? So, but that's how he was. He always did that. Even if you see him now, he'll say the same thing. I know from court documents that when Imam Jamil arrived at Reedsville Prison, the warden was immediately suspicious and wary of him. Imam Jamil was accused at least three times of being involved in escape plots. I'm talking Shawshank Redemption-type stuff here. One time, he was allegedly caught hanging out near a broken window. On the other side of the glass, a rope made of sheets and a hacksaw. He denied all of it, but the possibility of Imam Jamil's escape, that was just the beginning of the warden's concerns. In a memo from July 2002, months after Imam Jamil was convicted, the warden said that Imam Jamil had the potential and influence to be a definite threat. This, at the same time, he said that Imam Jamil hadn't created any trouble, that his behavior was acceptable, and that the warden expected his behavior would continue to be acceptable. To me, this contradiction, that Imam Jamil was a threat, but also well-behaved, the warden was revealing a deeper fear. Something like the evil energy that the U.S. Marshal felt in that Alabama courtroom standing near him. The myth of Imam Jamil, it was spreading, out of Imam Jamil's control, and gaining traction among people with the power to punish. In 2005, after three years of prison time, a Muslim inmate in a different facility sent Imam Jamil a message. This other guy wanted to know if Imam Jamil would assume leadership over Muslims throughout the Georgia Department of Corrections, unifying Muslim inmates at over 50 prisons. Imam Jamil said yes. A document was circulated for other Muslim inmates to sign if they agreed to pledge bayah or loyalty to Imam Jamil. The mission as it's laid out in the copy of the document we have, seemed noble enough. It said, look, Muslims aren't treated well in Georgia prisons. If we come together under Imam Jamil, we can better advocate for ourselves, and that will ultimately help us be better Muslims. But Imam Tariq, he didn't think this was a good idea, even though he had a lot of respect for Imam Jamil. I think a, a few brothers told me about it. And they were asking me about it, and I told them, no, nah, that's, that's not going to happen. Because that would, even that at that particular time, would trump the other authority that is there. The wardens ran the prisons, period. And they would shut down any other parallel hierarchy. When prison administration learned of the bayah, they talked to Imam Jamil about it. And he said he would instruct the other Muslims to quash the effort. That would be the end of that. But in June of 2006, about six months after the Bayah began, the FBI published an internal report with the title, The Attempt to Radicalize the Georgia Department of Corrections Inmate Population. The report called Imam Jamil an 
Islamic extremist, basically a terrorist. It ran through his biography, even quoted his fiery speech in Cambridge, Maryland. The FBI report narrowed in on a few lines in the Bayai document, and maybe reasonably so. One of the lines said, the Georgia Department of Corrections is a battlefield, and we need a general to coordinate and direct us. And another, a quote from an Islamic text, it suggested violence against anyone who challenges the leader. Here's this idea again, violence is a means for the greater good. It's scary for authorities when they're facing it too. It's why so much of the response from the feds was based on what they thought Imam Jamil might do, or how they imagined others might respond to him, not what actually happened. One passage of the report reads, It should be noted that any statements made by Alameen could be taken in an extreme nature, and the content could be potentially dangerous, even if Alameen's intent was innocuous. Imam Jamil became bigger than he actually was, scarier than he actually was, because the fear of violence freaks you the fuck out. One morning in 2007, prison guards showed up at Imam Jamil's cell in K building. They took him out through the rear gate of the prison where there was a caravan waiting. The guards put him in the back of an SUV. We got you now, Imam Jamil said one of the guards told him. Then they drove off. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
in the most common definition of violence. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the word simply means to exercise physical force against another. But there are also meanings of violence, obsolete uses dating back to the 15th century, that define it as an abuse of power or authority that persecutes or oppresses. These days, we don't really call that violence. There's no blood, no visible injury. But the consequences of such violence that we don't really call violence, they're very real, tangible. The FBI surveillance of Imam Jamil, the infiltration of the masjid by informants, it could fall under this lesser-used definition of violence. And the more I learned about the extent and duration of the surveillance, the more I was convinced that it contributed to the shootout, where there was very real blood. Imam Jamil's wife, Karima Alamin, she got information from the FBI that helped me draw this conclusion. Sister Karima is a lawyer, one I'm acquainted with, actually. She represented me and my wife on our green card application. Embarrassingly enough, I didn't realize at the time who her husband was. We reconnected when I started working on this project. And she was as nice as ever, though she did tell me that my generation needs to know more of its history. Sister Karima is pretty private, and she didn't want to be interviewed. But we were able to find a recording of her from a rally to support Imam Jamil that happened in Harlem. Rallies for Imam Jamil weren't uncommon after he was convicted and placed in isolation. This is one of the larger ones we've come across. There were about 200 people there. Here's Sister Karima. I do want to extend um, Imam Jamil, and I do call him Imam Jamil. Um, I want to extend his greetings and his appreciation. And he would say, Assalamu Alaikum to everyone. And that's how I begin. And I begin in the name of Allah, the most merciful. Soon after she and Rat began their relationship, the FBI contacted her. Some of Sister Karima's family were part of a black power group, and they had been arrested. The FBI tried to make a deal with Karima. They wanted me to uh, tell them where my husband, my soon-to-be husband, where he was traveling. And they told me at that time, well, if you help us, we'll drop the charges against your sister and her husband. And I said, well, you know, they were framed, so I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to cooperate. Uh, five years later, my, my husband is still saying he could never figure out whether I had cooperated or not. <laughs> He's still telling me that, right? It's sort of a dark joke, but also an ugly thing to have between a couple. Sister Karima said that when Rap was a target of the FBI, the Bureau harassed both of their parents so intensely that her father dropped dead in the street after some officials visited him in his job. A month later, Imam Jamil's mother died. And four months after that, Sister Karima's mother died. And let's not forget the car bomb. It brought our family closer and closer together, but it demonstrated the extent and the degree that they will go to divide families. After Imam Jamil was convicted, Sister Karima filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI. It told her that they had 
21,649 pages of records potentially responsive to her request. 21,649. Maybe at one point there had been even more records on Imam Jamil, but the FBI said many were damaged in a flood. Anyway, two years later after Sister Karima submitted the request, the FBI turned over almost 700 pages. When I looked through the documents, there were two things I saw that suggested the FBI was at least linked to the shooting of Deputy Kinchin and Deputy English. I don't mean they somehow orchestrated the thing. What I mean is that the FBI, they were up in the mix. First, there were three handwritten words. It was placed. Remember how when Imam Jamil was captured in Lowndes County, Alabama, an FBI agent named Ron Campbell kicked and spit on him? Campbell had a troubled history with the Bureau, was accused of shooting an African-American Muslim in the back of the head and planting a gun at the scene in Philadelphia. While Campbell was chasing Imam Jamil, he fell in the swamp, he'd say later, and was on his own for at least a few minutes. During the trial, the defense called Campbell to testify. Here's Imam Jamil's lead defense attorney, Jack Martin. We knew that Campbell was willing to plant evidence. He was a corrupt FBI agent. The gun was not on Alameen at the time he was arrested. It was supposedly found later, and they found the gun on the ground. I wonder why they didn't find the gun in the first place. I said this earlier, but I'll say it again. We contacted Campbell, but he didn't agree to an interview. An internal investigation cleared Campbell in that Philadelphia case, and he was never charged with anything related to it. And we don't have any evidence Campbell was a corrupt agent. That's just what Martin thought. After Imam Jamil was captured, that same night, a sergeant on the dog tracking team found a 9mm pistol near the edge of the woods. Why would Alameen, if he had this shootout in, in Atlanta with this gun, have brought it with him to Alabama? Why, didn't, why wouldn't he just get rid of it? The documents Sister Karima got from the FBI, they included handwritten notes of a debrief with the sergeant on the dog tracking team. And the notes from the FBI said, apparently paraphrasing the sergeant about the gun, that it was placed. Like, maybe the sergeant told the FBI that it looked like the pistol had been planted. That one handwritten note, it supported the argument that the FBI conspired to get a Mam Jamil convicted. We tried to ask the sergeant about this, but he didn't agree to an interview. Law enforcement found another gun in the woods too, a Ruger Mini-14 rifle. Like with the pistol, Imam Jamil's fingerprints weren't found on the rifle. Both guns were ultimately linked to Imam Jamil in the shooting. But you know, like I've said before, ballistics analysis linking a specific gun to a specific bullet, it has no basis in science. But if the guns were placed, were they identical models that law enforcement could have gotten anywhere? Were they brought all the way from Georgia? Attorney Martin has a theory for that. It only would be plausible if somehow or another the undercover agent for the FBI, whoever, collected the gun in Atlanta or got a gun that matched the situation and brought it to Alabama. Basically, Martin is saying someone somehow connected to the FBI who was in and around the masjid at the time of the shooting, they helped execute a frame job. And so that brings me to the second thing in the documents that Sister Karima got from the FBI. Proof the Bureau was surveilling Imam Jamil 
just days before the shootout on March 16, 2000. The documents are heavily redacted, but I can see that they include regular reports and surveillance of Imam Jamil in the masjid. And the surveillance actually appeared to escalate in the months before the shootout. Let me start at the beginning. March 1998. During two hours of surveillance, the subject, Imam Jamil, was not observed. April 98. Agents drove through the West End and saw Imam Jamil standing on the deck behind his corner store, across from the masjid. February 1999. A confidential source told someone at the FBI a piece of information significant enough that it was shared with FBI headquarters, and the surveillance appeared to intensify. April 99. An agent saw Imam Jamil unload something from a dark green Ford Explorer with, and this is noted in the report, dealer tags. The next month, Imam Jamil was pulled over in that Ford Explorer because he was driving with dealer tags and then arrested for allegedly driving a stolen vehicle. Then there were FBI reports in May, June, July, and August of 99, all redacted. In October, there's another long report. It describes Imam Jamil as the leader of a network of masjids in the U.S. that are, quote, involved in violent crimes and gain their funding from countries in opposition to the philosophical standing of the United States. Alamin is well known to law enforcement authorities as an active militant, end quote. The philosophical standing of the United States that sounds to me like something you'd expect to find in a Cointelpro document from the 60s. In February 2000, the FBI got an updated driver's license photo of Imam Jamil from the Georgia State Patrol. And on March 6th of 2000, just 10 days before the shootout, there's a memo with a section at the bottom reporting Imam Jamil was charged with failing to appear in court on that stolen vehicle charge. It was his failure to appear that led to the warrant that Kenshin and English had with them in the West End on March 16, 2000. Despite all the redactions in the documents, they said a lot. The FBI could have done work behind the scenes to get Imam Jamil arrested in that Ford Explorer. They could have had someone running surveillance in the West End at the time of the shootout. Someone who might have helped plant a weapon in the woods. That all seemed possible to me. Some of it even seemed likely. Now, I knew that the FBI's pursuit of Imam Jamil, of H. Rap Brown, what we can call a kind of violence against him and his family and his community, it hadn't stopped at the end of the 1960s. It didn't even stop once he was convicted and placed in solitary confinement in Georgia. Because the FBI's report about Imam Jamil while he was in prison, the one that labeled him an Islamic extremist, that report helped justify even more violence. Violence that some might call soul-crushing. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In 2007, five years after he was convicted, when Imam Jamil was taken out of his cell in the early morning, put in the back of an SUV, and driven away from Reedsville Prison in Tattnall County, Georgia, he had no idea where he was being taken. We got you now, he said a guard told him. I wonder where Imam Jamil thought he might be going when he heard that. It's not something an inmate hears before being taken to a medical appointment or a court date. No, this was much more ominous. It had to be worse than solitary confinement in Georgia's toughest prison where Imam Jamil had already been. Did his mind turn to the car bomb? Did he think about waterboarding, Guantanamo? Or did he trust his government to follow the rule of law? I don't know. An airport about a three-hour drive away from Reedsville was their first stop. Imam Jamil sat waiting for several more hours in the back seat of a van, his feet shackled, his hands cuffed and chained to his waist. By this time, Imam Jamil had picked up that the feds had him, but he still didn't know where he was going. At five in the evening, now ten hours after he was taken out of his cell, he complained he was having chest pains and needed to see a doctor. When he got out of the vehicle, he collapsed, and after some back and forth among the guards, he was taken to a hospital. There was an issue with his heart. It's not clear exactly what it was, but he underwent a procedure under anesthesia. Two days later, Imam Jamil was finally taken onto a plane and flown to Oklahoma, and then to Colorado. He was driven west, through the desert. 
there's mountains around it. The area itself is beautiful, but it becomes more and more remote until finally you get to this place that feels a little bit like the end of the earth. Laura Rovner is an attorney and one of the few people who has spent time inside the federal prison where Mam Jamil was taken in Florence, Colorado. The place's full name is United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility, but it's known as ADX Florence, a supermax prison considered the most secure in the world. The Georgia Department of Corrections had requested that the federal government take custody of Imam Jamil, citing the FBI's finding that he was an Islamic extremist. Laura, the attorney, she teaches law at the University of Denver, where she runs a civil rights clinic. She took on her first client from ADX Florence in 2006, suing the government over the conditions there, with her students' help. And then the students and I went on to represent a number of other people. And then the more work that I did, the more it became apparent how necessary it was and how really um, unspeakably bad the conditions were. About 300 Americans and foreign citizens are incarcerated at ADX Florence. Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the former drug lord from Mexico known for his brazen prison escapes, one of the Boston Marathon bombers, men involved in the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, and at least nine members of Al-Qaeda. Those are just some of the most famous. In the federal system, after 9-11, a disproportionate percentage of Muslims, by one estimate 70%, were incarcerated at high-security prisons. The federal government opened ADX Florence in 1994. Laura told me that as the prison population in the United States grew dramatically during the 80s and 90s, prisons, as you might expect, became overcrowded. Sentences were longer, inmates grew more hopeless, and they became more violent. The idea behind opening the Supermax facility was to isolate potentially violent inmates. ADX Florence looks like a one- or two-story red brick building that's built into the side of a hill. It's sort of unassuming on the outside, except for the circles of barbed wire and the watchtower. When Imam Jamil first arrived there, he might have felt like he was being taken underground, and it probably would have felt disorienting. There are few windows and little or no natural light. In terms of what people's experiences like, kind of on the way they are entering it, I think people are... are generally afraid, not knowing what to expect, not knowing if they're going to be there forever or if they're going to have any ability to get out. Eventually, Imam Jamil would have been taken to his own cell. Everyone in ADX is in solitary confinement. The atmosphere is clinical, cold, austere. The way Imam Jamil put it, if Reedsville Prison was run by the KKK, ADX Florence is run by Nazis. He had been in solitary confinement in Reedsville Prison, too. But the conditions at ADX Florence, they were more profoundly isolating. The prison seems designed to sever a person's access to and influence on society. If part of what we humans are doing as conscious beings on this earth is acting on impulses from somewhere deep down to shape the world around us, ADX Florence walls off those deeper portions, the souls of people, the religious might say, with thick, thick, concrete. Some souls are just too dangerous. 
Each individual cell is eight feet by 10 feet, about three steps to get from one side to the other. The walls are white or grayish green. There's a cement platform bed, a shower, a cement desk, a poured cement stool in front of the desk, and a TV. The cells have solid doors that limit communication with anyone outside. Five days a week, Imam Jamil was able to spend an hour outdoors. He was taken, fully shackled, to what Laura describes as an empty swimming pool with cages dropped in it. The view from inside the cages, more concrete. Imam Jamil could see the sky, maybe a plane flying overhead, but nothing of the landscape, not even the mountains he would have passed when he was transported to the prison. There are people who have talked about going out to those exercise cages and, you know, that somehow through some miracle of nature, some little blade of grass was growing up under the cement. And, you know, some of the people who were in the cages at different times were able to see it and were just so excited by it because it was the only nature that they had seen. I mean, you don't see anything out your window except cement also. And, you know, talked about the cruelty of of one of the staff coming and just pulling out this you know, one little blade of grass. And it's just so incredibly evocative and symbolic to me of, of what the space is like. Imam Jamil can make two or three 15-minute calls each month. Sister Karima and their youngest son, Kyrie, they came to visit him much less frequently in Colorado than they had in Georgia. Reedsville Prison is 200 miles from Atlanta, ADX Florence is 1,400. On the days that Sister Karima and Kyrie did come to ADX Florence, Imam Jamil was taken to the visiting area, and he sat across from them, still handcuffed and shackled, able to speak to them through plexiglass. The visits lasted about six hours. One day, Laura was also in the visiting area to speak to a client, and she caught a glimpse of Imam Jamil. He smiled um, and waved. <laughs> When he saw me, I mean, I don't think he knew who I was, but, you know, I, I sort of smiled and, and waved back. Um, he, if you're not there officially to visit a particular person, you can't have any communication with them. So there was no question that, you know, like I could have gone over or spoken to him or done anything like that. I mean, I was worried um, that I would potentially get in trouble even for doing the wave. Um, but it just was a bright, open smile that he gave me and a friendly wave, and it just, I don't know. It was just nice to see him. Imam Jamil's body suffered because of conditions at the Supermax. Laura said that many people incarcerated there deal with high blood pressure, vitamin D deficiencies, mobility issues, and they can even lose their long-distance vision because they so rarely need to focus on anything far away. Laura worries about all that, but when I spoke to her, she seemed more concerned about the psychological effects of being incarcerated at ADX Florence. People with mental illness, when they enter the prison, they get sicker. Some develop mental illness once they get there. And then there are the people who Laura can see are damaged, but maybe not diagnosed. They can't make eye contact or stay focused. And they're overwhelmed or exhausted by conversations. I think there's something particularly insidious about solitary that 
in order to survive it, you're sort of trained to not need social contact anymore and everything that comes with that. And so if you sort of get good enough at it, it then becomes hard to do it again when it's not required. This idea that like you sort of go from craving it to almost being sometimes unable to tolerate it at all. And the craving and, human contact. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've uh, gone as far as using the word torture to describe the practice. Is that something that you still, that you still believe? Absolutely. I think when people think about torture, I think they think about things that seem much more obvious in terms of physical manifestations. So, you know, we don't sanction pulling out people's fingernails, um, but the mental harm and anguish that solitary confinement produces in people is is just as real. And almost to a person, the folks that I have talked with who are in solitary would trade it in an instant for whatever physical punishment the state would want to dispense. Every one of them has talked about how much worse this is. Hmm. The federal courts haven't agreed with Laura that solitary confinement at ADX Florence is cruel and unusual punishment. The practice continues today, mostly unabated. Talking to Laura and looking closely at ADX Florence, studying the concentrated, isolating violence there, I wonder if part of the reason that we citizens can stomach the government carrying out violence on our behalf is that we imagine that it stops with the person being punished. Like, the harm to the deserving person is done, and there are no ripple effects. But this stuff, whether it's Jim Crow sheriffs or FBI surveillance, round from a semi-automatic rifle or solitary confinement. It stays with a person, etched as memory. It stays within a family as loss. It stays within communities, within societies, within countries, passed back and forth. If we believe that to keep the public safe, we must harm some people, are we accounting for the ways that violence begets more violence? All of this, I realize now, was roiling beneath the surface that night on March 16th, 2000. Some prisoners at ADX Florence have a path to be transferred out, to less harsh facilities. But it seemed that because Imam Jamil was technically a state prisoner, that wasn't a possibility. He seemed to be trapped at this prison at the end of the earth, until his death. Unless, maybe a new piece of evidence was found, something that proved someone else shot the deputies. I've gotten away with murder for real. You know how some people say, man, you get away with murder. I've literally gotten away with murder. So, um, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. That's on the next episode of Radical. Radical is a production of Campside Media, Tinderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts. 
Radical was reported and written by Johnny Kaufman and me, Mosi Secret. Johnny Kaufman is our senior producer. Sheba Joseph is our associate producer. Editing by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, Emily Martinez, and Matt Scher. Fact-checking by Sophie Hurwitz, Kaylin Lynch, and Layla Dose. Original music by Kyle Murdoch and by Ray Murray of Organized Noise. Sound design and mixing by Kevin Seaman. Recording by Ewan Leitrim-Ewan and Sheba Joseph. Campside Media's operations team is Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Aaliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, and Sabina Mera. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. For Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. The executive producers at iHeart Podcasts are Matt Frederick and Alex Williams, with additional support from Trevor Young. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.